This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Last year, I had so many great conversations with artists around the state who were highlighted as the Missouri Arts Council's featured artists each month. There were painters, photographers, sculptors, poets, dancers and musicians. Each had such interesting backgrounds and impressive resumes, and I loved finding out about arts makers beyond our own mid-Missouri community who were adding to the cultural commons of our state. So this week, I thought we'd take a trip back through the year and remember four of the conversations that I had with music makers, a jazz singer in St. Louis, a bluegrass singer-songwriter in Jefferson City, the queen of avant soul in St. Louis, and a professional guitarist from Afton. So let's start in Afton with guitarist Patrick Rafferty. I played piano for a couple of years when I was a child, but gave it up because I only just scraped a pass in an exam. And then as an adult, I took up the harp, but then I went traveling and I sold my harp. Plus, a competition judge had pointedly told me in front of a room full of other contestants that the tempo description rubato, Miss Moxon, was not the same as playing out of time. I clearly lacked both fortitude, patience, and also a decent sense of timing. So I have always envied people who do have the determination and patience to master an instrument. Professional guitarist Patrick Rafferty is one such musician who likely flew past the alleged 10,000 hours it takes to master a skill many years ago. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. It's good to be here. So you are a teacher as well as a performer. So you must see students grapple with the same issues I had of just not having the patience to put the hours in to be the performer they wish they could be. How do you get them past that? Oh, wow. Um, I would say there's a different answer for every student. (laughs) And I wouldn't, I would say that they don't all get past that. That's probably (laughs) true. Well, I mean, you've been playing guitar since fourth grade. So I'm curious whether, obviously, you've had those moments of being on the verge of packing it all in and how you got yourself over that hurdle. I still deal with that hurdle all the time. I think um, experience comes into play in a lot of cases. Having solved similar problems in different pieces, you start to compile a bit of a catalog of solutions to problems. And um, it's all about trying to always get a different perspective on the problem so you can find that new path. You chose guitar when you were in fourth grade. Did you grow up in a musical family? Why, why did you choose guitar at such a young age? You know, I just, uh, I always wanted to play guitar when I was little. I can remember begging my mom to get me a guitar. And she said that, no, I needed to take piano first. <laughs> so I learned a few, took piano for a few years and it was okay. But the whole time I, I just really wanted to play guitar. I, I don't have a clear recollection as to why that would have been, but that was certainly the case. And why classical acoustic guitar? Or is that something you've come to later in life? Yeah. So I, I grew up in Southeast Missouri. So my 
awareness of guitar music was firmly rooted in rock and roll, blues, and country styles. Um, it wasn't until I got more into my like late teens that I started to experience what the classical guitar has to offer. And that would be the ability to to perform pieces as a soloist without having to rely on an accompanist or or band members. The style is really built for solo performance. And in my opinion, it's it's the most rewarding style to play and it has the, the most varied amount of repertoire to play as well. Do you remember hearing a classical guitarist or that moment when you discovered that it existed as a as a genre? Yeah, of course. I, I can remember when I was younger listening to Segovia and John Williams because I always had guitar magazines. I would always bike down to the grocery store and buy these guitar magazines and they would always have like a small section dedicated to classical guitar, but it was always written out in notation. So I wasn't able to really deal with it because I couldn't read notation at the time, but I would always read the articles and I would listen to the recordings and it was it was mind-blowing. It was like so far outside of my uh, comfort zone that it wasn't really approachable at that point. Well, you got both your Master of Music and Graduate Performance Diploma from the Peabody Institute at John Hopkins University, and you were voted the top graduate performer by your peers. You were also only the third guitarist in over 60 years to win a top prize in the Artist Presentation Society auditions in St. Louis back in 2011. And today you are a professional guitarist playing solo and ensemble recitals, as well as serving on the guitar faculty at Southeast Missouri State and St. Louis University and teaching privately. So with such a storied career, what are some of the high points that really make your heart resonate the most? <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I've had a lot. There are a lot of performances that I think back on, especially um, in grad school, because that was such a challenging setting to be in with so many other great players and musicians there are a lot of experiences during grad school that I think went a long ways towards shaping the career arc I've been on since then. But gosh, that's like 12 years ago at this point. So a lot has happened since then. And um, I don't know, I can't really single out any single one. I, I guess just the experience of being able to continue to, to do performances and, and to play and to actually made it into something at this point is the most rewarding part of it. How has the past year been for you with no performances? <laughs> Horrible. I'm fortunate to, you know, I have two little boys and, and I'm married to my wife, Jill, and we've been fortunate to be able to spend a lot of time together during that time. And I certainly have kept up playing, but um, I, I sorely miss having performances to prepare for and it's great to finally have some things kind of on the books at this point so I can start moving back towards that direction I guess. As a guitar player, a solo guitar player, then probably you're back on the stage before people that play wind instruments or people that play in bands or anything. I mean, there's just you not blowing any any aerosols with your guitar. <laughs> so it might be a little easier. Yeah, I think so. Um to this point, my experience has been that even though it seems like we're, we're kind of on the downside of all this, 
it's still really slow going for a lot of these organizations to kind of get the wheels turning again and, and identify funding and then start scheduling seasons. So the ball is just barely starting to roll. Well, at least that's been my perspective. To your point, though, yeah, it is true. I think that guitarists are easy to schedule because all we really need is a chair and we're not uh, we're not going to be breathing on anybody. (laughs) (laughs) So you write that as a performer, you aim for the singular experience. What do you mean by that? So I I think of the the performance experience as, as something that can really only be experienced when you're in a face to face setting with the performer and my goal is that when people leave they feel like they've gotten something that they couldn't have gotten anywhere else i know we all listen to recordings now and you can watch anybody you want play on youtube now but those are a far cry from actually having to sit in a chair and be quiet Mm. (laughs) and listen to the live music experience, which is far more powerful than either of those other two options. And um, I I just think it's a really special uh, relationship that you can have with an audience. Uh, There's not really anything that comes close, musically speaking. And then you kind of take it a step further and consider that when you're hearing a live classical guitarist, there's there's nothing to filter that sound. You're not playing through any mics or your or amplifiers or anything. It's strictly coming straight out of the instrument right into your ears. So you couldn't ask for a more direct reception, I guess. Well, let's have a little musical interlude here, even though we're not face to face, and listen to you play a recording. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to listen to and why you chose this piece. Well, I uh, I'm going to be playing the opening of Asturias. It is actually originally written for piano, but I think it's safe to say it's the most famous piece of solo classical guitar music there is out there. It's written by Isaac Albanez. And um, this is just something that's in my current repertoire, and I recorded it for you about an hour and a half ago. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> hopefully it's uh, up to par. Is this your own arrangement? This is my own arrangement, yes. Perfect. Here we go. Here's Patrick Rafferty playing his own arrangement of Asturias. Patrick 
Rafferty playing Asturias. I'm always curious about what the hot issues are within a particular art form or genre, things that only people who are actively involved in that genre know about. So tell me, what occupies the best minds in the world of classical guitar? You know, at this point, being that we've all been on lockdown for the last year, I mean, there's no question that it's how to get back to where we were a year, year and a half ago when there was a very vibrant classical guitar scene across pretty much all the major cities in the U.S. And there were a number of performance opportunities. So so that would be the hot issue. I guess kind of coming up close to that is dealing with repertoire, like all classical music. We're trying to find some middle ground between all of the pillars of the repertoire, which have all been written in the past and trying to keep it current by also making uh, contemporary music or giving contemporary music a voice. Those are the two big things to my mind. So final question, what, where, or who is on your guitar playing bucket list? Piece of music you want to master, a venue you want to play in, a duet or ensemble you'd love to be part of, maybe all three. What's your like your dream gig? Wow, I guess I have to say like uh, Carnegie Hall, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the dream gig. You know, I have this vision that I, what I would really like to do is be able to play for really large audiences through some kind of amplified system where uh, sound quality isn't lost, but I can actually reach audiences like a rock guitarist can reach an audience. <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen. But um, <laughs> Never say never, Patrick. We just have that, that one drawback with the classical guitar, just the fact that we're just not very loud. Okay, Carnegie Hall, here you come. You can find out more about guitarist Patrick Rafferty and listen to his music at patrickraffertyguitar.com. Patrick, thank you so much for taking time to chat this morning. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks, Diana. When the art you create does not neatly fit into any existing genre, then the answer is to create a new genre, which is exactly what St. Louis-based singer Candice Ivory did after the release of her most recent album, Love Music, in 2015. Calling herself the queen of avant soul to encapsulate the multiple styles her music draws from. Sounds which, in combination, create a musical voice that speaks to the future rather than the past, but always retains at its heart soul music. And Candice is certainly no newcomer to the world of music, having started her singing career on Memphis's Beale Street at the age of 15. She comes from a family steeped in the musical traditions of the Mississippi Delta, and her great uncle was legendary Memphis bluesman Will Roy Sanders. At 18, she had her own radio show on Memphis's jazz station, WUMR, started her own jazz groups and performed at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. She is also a visual artist, is currently in grad school studying art history, has been on TV in Iceland and somewhere in her closet, she has an Elvis suit. We have a lot to discuss. Candice, what a delight to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Diana. I feel like we should start with that Elvis suit, Candice. When I look at you in a gorgeous pink and purple silk dress on the cover of your album, you do not strike me as someone who has an Elvis suit in her closet. So do tell. <laughs> well, you never know what you'll find at one of my concerts. <laughs> so, 
So I always like to throw that disclaimer out there. We like to keep it interesting. And, you know, of course, coming from Memphis, Elvis, his presence permeates the city even now. Uh, So it just seemed like the right thing to do at that particular concert. So I had a special suit made for me. Of course, it's it's nothing new. Everybody was making those, you know, James Brown, Rufus Thomas, the OJs. Everybody wore those jumpsuits in the 70s. But Elvis is is just something special. So most people in Memphis have an Elvis suit in their closet is what you're telling me. (laughs) I I hope so. I mean, and some blue suede shoes also. (laughs) Well, tell me about about Avant Soul and what that means to you. Well, it's interesting because for so many years, I had people trying to get me to describe what my music is and what it is that I do. A&R reps, you know, industry reps, record labels. They're all, well, what do you do? What is? What do you call this? What is this? Or telling me that I need to define it, which for me, that's not something that I ever really wanted to do. I just wanted to be me, which embodies a a wide breadth of things, genres, eras, lots of different influences. So I came up with the term Avant Soul after I moved to St. Louis. My former uh, teacher, Reggie Workman, who was the bass player for John Coltrane, he was like, I don't know if you want to use the term Avant because it means that you're too far ahead of the curve, it means that people won't be able to catch up with you or (laughs) that, you know, you'll probably just be lost in obscurity. I'm like, (laughs) well, aren't we all? (laughs) So, So I just decided to keep going with that because regardless of how cutting edge the sounds may be or how I experiment with sound and visuals, the root of it is all to connect with people at a soul level. And that's what soul music is about. It's just about being able to connect with people. Was there ever a time when you thought you were going to be anything other than a musician? (laughs) Absolutely. Even now, I still, (laughs) (laughs) even now I'm still wondering, what am I going to be when I finally grow up? Uh, (laughs) I'm always, I've always thought about doing different things things or, you know, I have interests and I just kind of go with my curiosity takes me. So I've done so many different types of jobs over the years. And at one point, I, everybody in my family thought I would be great as a, a news anchor. I don't understand why they thought that, but this was really the direction they were trying to push me. <laughs> but as a 15-year-old artist at that time, I always was just like, well, music will always clearly be a part of my life. But maybe I'll think about doing other things. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, you come from a musical family and your great uncle was Will Roy Sanders, who was a legendary blues musician. How much of a role did your great uncle play in your early musical career? My uncle and I were uh, very close. I spent a lot of time. He used to own a juke joint, which, you know, I don't know if people still know what those are. I did a um, masterclass at Washington University a couple of weeks ago, and I asked the students if they knew what a juke joint was, and most of them did not. (laughs) So he used to own a juke joint called Green's Lounge, which was uh, in a neighborhood called Castalia in Memphis, and that burned down, and later he would go become the house band with the field stones at the Blue Worm. So I was there most, most weekends when I was in town, 
And basically his legacy has been one that I've tried to carry on in the sense of just teaching it. I don't really consider myself a blues musician, even though I did just record a blues album. (laughs) I just try to continue to teach the legacy of blues and gospel, which is one that I grew up in watching him and under his tutelage. I know he passed away in 2010, but you had already released two albums by then. What did what were his comments on your early albums? When I was actually going to, I went to new school in New York. And as I was going there to study in the jazz and contemporary music program, uh, when I decided to go to school for jazz, my uncle was like, well, I'm glad you're going. I've never been able to understand that. You need to do that because that's <laughs> something you can understand. <laughs> so he was supportive in the sense that I think that's something that you can do. I don't think it's a world for me, but he was supportive of me and embracing in my curiosity. One thing I have to ask you about is how you ended up performing live on Icelandic television in 2007. How did that happen? Well, I have friends all over the world and I passed through Iceland on my way to Europe for a completely different trip. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what a strange and curious and fascinating place. I've got to play here. (laughs) And so I discovered that I actually did have a friend who was Icelandic, a very good friend who was Icelandic. And at some point we decided, well, yes, you should definitely come to Iceland on one of your next European tours. And so it just happened somehow. We just manifested that. And <laughs> I ended up playing on, I guess, what would be the equivalent of like their Dave Letterman show. And the funny thing is I actually did meet a very prominent St. Louis musician while I was in Iceland. <laughs> I met uh, Luther Thomas, who's just a really visionary artist and uh, trumpet player there and woodwinds. So Luther ended up helping me out. He ended up taking care of me when I was sick. His wife gave me all the jewelry that I wore for my show. It was great. Well, let's talk about your music. Love Music was your first solo album since your sophomore album in 2005 called Questography. So that was a 10-year gap and that followed your debut album Path Undefined in 2003. How do you feel your music changed between each of those albums? Well, I always leave little clues between records. So usually you can find some song on a previous album or project that will kind of link you to give you an insight to where I might be going next. I just do think that between the span of the records, it wasn't actually that long between recordings, I would say, that I put the albums out. The first two were actually recorded quite close together. And between the first album and the second album, I decided that I really wanted to explore the marriage of analog and digital as the world was gaining new technology and music was starting to change. I had been you know, largely rooted in a world that was really traditional, really acoustic instruments, live performance, and I was moving into a world that was more synth-based, more electronic, and I was really getting fascinated with that. So love music is about me being able to make the happy marriage between those two worlds. Well, there is a song on your debut album called Morning Light, which is 
you're, you, when you sound young, it feels very sweet. It's kind of a smooth soul. You've got a bewitching bass line. In the morning while you sleep I feel your breath against my cheek Busy patterns of your slowly fading dream hope you're dreaming about me and then you revisit it on love music your 2015 album where it has an altogether different feel electronic <laughs> heavy with deeper and darker vocals you sound much more mature and wise to the world light through the window you have sleep i rock the bed but you too deep don't want to wait to you too sweet I got to touch you, you make me you revisit and rework this particular song? It's interesting that you bring that up. I think for every song that I've written, there's probably about three or four different versions of, of that song. So <laughs> that's just, you know, the kind of writing that I do. I like it to be able to translate into different worlds, different audiences. I play for a really diverse group of people. I don't, I wouldn't say that I have one following or one audience that I specifically focus on. I just think that the connection of people is about being able to, in that moment, connect best with who you are, with what you have in that space. So revisiting these tunes has been really interesting because I think love music is just about love isn't always, you know, it isn't always rainbows. It isn't always pain and hurt either. I think there's a happy balance in medium. So Morning Light 2 is just kind of a, another expression of love, uh, maybe a, a more casual one. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you are very in love with the person in Morning Light. And then by Morning Light 2, you sound like you've just had enough. <laughs> So I wondered if there's a natural person behind that. <laughs> By morning light, too, with somebody completely different. <laughs> I mean, you've traveled all over the United States and all around the world, you performed in Iceland, France, Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, Australia. Was there any one place that stood out for you where you thought, hmm, these people really get me? Oh, you'll get me in trouble, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> I do hope that I can return to France and do more playing there. I feel, you know, a real connection in France, not just in Paris, but also the French countryside. It's been really wonderful to go there. I meet lovely artists. I do think that the style of music that I've been able to play there has been I would say mostly jazz and blues. It would be nice to bring back the kind of more electronic side of music there just to get a sense of, you know, how people would receive that. Because usually when I'm there, you know, we have a stripped down band some of the time. I, we didn't have that in Iceland so much, but 
I think in France, I've played in a more stripped down setting. So it would be nice to bring my full band back there. Well, let's go out with a little of your music. There is a song on Love Music called Hitchhiking in a Dali Painting, which is such a great title. Tell us a little bit about that song. This song was actually based on a dream that I had. And it's it kind of played out one morning I woke up and I had this really intense dream and I was in the process of recording this album. And so I just got up and decided I would record it. So basically sat there and got my gear and played. And so it was just a dream, an ethereal vision I had about hitchhiking and meeting all these interesting strangers along the way. And the advice that they would give me as I was trying to head to my destination. And I think it's interesting that you picked that song because it definitely is a a clue or a nugget for the next project. <laughs> mm, okay, intriguing. Well, here it is, Hitchhiking in a Dali Painting. Candice Ivory's Avant Soul music, visit her website at candiceivory.com or search for her on Spotify, where you can find all three of her albums. And Candice, thank you so much for telling us about the Elvis suit and for <laughs> taking time to chat today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real honor. Thank you, Diana. The very first day I set foot in Missouri, I stopped in on a bluegrass gathering at the Prater family farm in the tiny town of Fillmore in the northwest corner of the state. On stage were the Martin family, a trio of women called Southern Rain, the Arlington family, and it was really the first time I had listened to bluegrass. Little did I know at that point that Missouri was going to become my home. But my next guest this morning has been steeped in bluegrass his whole life, having started singing at the age of three in church and with his dad's band on stage in Branson. As an adult, his career has included spells in Los Angeles. He has sung at Carnegie Hall and performed at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. And these days, he lives in Jefferson City, and I am so happy he could join us this morning. Welcome to the show, Ray Cardwell. Thanks, Diana. Thanks for having me on. Well, you have so many twists and turns in your career, Ray. So let's do this chronologically and go back to toddler Ray singing at church at the age of three. (laughs) What do you remember about your early childhood and music? (laughs) 
You know, I, I just always remember there being um, music involved from my dad's band and then from being in church my whole life. That was just the way I always grew up. My And I don't remember when I sang the first time my mom said that she didn't even know and and the Sunday school teacher just marched me up there in front of the whole church and I sang Jesus Loves Me by myself and <laughs> brought the house down, I'm told. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure it was very adorable. So I mean, your dad's band, Marvin Cardwell and the Country Boys, were one of the first ever live music shows in Branson in the 1960s. And you got to go up and sing with them on stage. What are your memories of that? Oh, I have lots of memories playing with my dad's band. Um there was actually five other shows in, and I believe the Presleys and the Ball Numbers were first, but we were at a place, a tourist place called Jesse James Confusion Hill. <laughs> yeah, it, it was great. And you could go around and back and get a piece of marble out of this rock and stuff. And I remember uh, reaching in there, and the guy would tell me, don't reach in too far because there's scorpions that drop in there. And of course, I you know, quickly drew my hand out and never reached in there again. But uh, um, there was a fort there and we played outside and it was 25 cents to get in. How about that? Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And did you just kind of do occasional performances or were you a regular on stage with them? Oh, no, I was much too young to to hold the crowd yet, Uh, although I probably would have tried. I um. My my two sisters and I would get up and we would just usually sing one or two featured songs and that was it. And it was pretty cool though. There was a live broadcast out of Aurora, Missouri, and we would broadcast the show onto radio on Saturday nights. And and that was pretty big doings for a little kid. But that was pretty cool. That was one of the things that I noted when I went to that bluegrass festival at the Prater family farm was how many of the bluegrass bands were really families. And it was such a family affair. It wasn't something that I was used to seeing. So in those days when you then you had a band with you, the rest of your family, uh, with your sisters and your parents, I mean, was that was there a circuit of bluegrass kids that all hung out together? Did you compete with each other a little bit? <laughs> well, you know, um, I guess so. I I didn't really think of it that way. I mean, there was I don't know if we ever really competed with anybody else. Um but we were definitely in the mix with a bunch of them. Um, there was the Crouch family from down around Branson, and there was the Counton girls, oh, the Counton family. Those girls could really sing well, and they were from Branson as well in that area. And there was just several different barns that people played at or festivals. I can remember going to Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Have you ever been there before? I have, yes. Yeah, that's I, it's one of my favorite places in the world. But, um, there's the auditorium there, and you used to show up at 2 o'clock and sign up, and, you know, first come, first serve. So all the families or the groups would sit on hay bales on the stage, and we would wait in our turn, and we would sing two or three songs and then, and then drive back to Springfield, Missouri. So um, there was competition, you know. But I think it was all in friendliness. It's uh, nobody was cutting somebody's <laughs> strings or, or or giving them flat tires like that. But uh, it was an interesting way to grow up. Well, let's chat a little bit about your music. It is a combination of bluegrass, blues, country, rock, and gospel, and you have a four and a half octave vocal range. 
which the music magazine Bluegrass Unlimited described as a powerful force of nature that can tackle anything he wants to try. <laughs> Where does your voice start and stop? You know, when I was in high school and singing in the choir, I always sang baritone and bass. And I didn't figure out that I could sing high until I started playing rock in the early in the mid 80s. And I found out that I could sing a lot higher. So really, I'm a bass singer that figured out how to sing high. So that's what my range is from. And I think a lot of it came from I was in marching band and um, I played Barry Sax, the baritone saxophone. So that, that took a lot of breath to uh, play that thing. And I think that it really developed my voice, honestly. How many instruments do you play? You know, now I play like four or five, but when I was, I was a band and choir teacher for 14 years. So I had to know how to play all their instruments in band and, uh, you know, and, and at least get them to an intermediate level to where I could work with them, you know, from the conductor's chair. Well, what are you comfortable playing on stage at this point in your career? Oh, bass, guitar and vocals are my main deal. I, I play a lot of guitar still. And um, I play a little saxophone. I play a little keyboards. And that's that's probably about it. Well, your mum was a bass player, I believe, and your dad played multiple instruments. So when you're songwriting, what line are you hearing in your head or what instrument tends to take the lead? Well, you know, it's funny that you would ask that. Um, when I first started writing, it seemed like I would always have songs based around the bass line. And I didn't start playing bass until the early 90s. And it just made a lot of sense because it's like, oh, well, I know this bass line because I wrote it to go like this with this song, you know, and and it just made sense. It's like, oh, this. Yeah, I'm a bass player. That's definitely it. You know, I I like to keep it simple and just groove. You know, I'm not a not a flash guy, but I like to, to support the song, if that makes sense. So bass takes over, even though you have this huge voice, you hear the bass line rather than the melody line. Hmm. Now I see what you're doing here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's look at, and I'm not comparing myself to Paul McCartney at all, but even though he had these wonderful, sweet, beautiful melodies, his bass lines were almost contrapuntual and they would do the coolest things behind what was going on. And I think that's an inspiration to me. Does that make sense? Sure. Let's go with yes. Yes. I'm, okay. sure, I'm sure any musician <laughs> listening will, it'll be making sense to them. <laughs> well, your latest album called Just a Little Rain came out last September and includes a song called Rising Sun, which you co-wrote with the legendary bluegrass songwriter Louise Branscombe. How did that partnership come about? You know, Louise and I, I've always been in awe of her writing skills and stuff. She wrote Steel Rails, which was one of Alison Krauss's first big hits and got a Grammy for that. So she's, she, you know, she's a big deal and she's just a beautiful soul. We, we started writing to each other on social media and talking things out. And then when the pandemic hit, we decided that we should apply ourselves with all this downtime to really reach out and write with people we don't normally get to write with. And and she and I just, it was like we were having a conversation. We were just writing through all of our fears and our worries and our musings about what was going on. And, you know, it's definitely a, 
fit with the time when it came out, you know. So, I mean, the the album, Just a Little Rain, is that your COVID album? <laughs> I, there's one song on there. It's about COVID. I don't think the rest of it. No, I did. I did record it right when um, the the studios could open back up again in Nashville. And I ran down there and got some guys to play on there that normally would be on the road. So I think that there were some things that were in place to show it was a sign of the times of, you know, um, but no, it's not. Every song is not about COVID. I meant more, was it kind of what you did during COVID that this was what kept you busy and, and was your muse and kept you from going insane during that period last year? I get it now. Okay, yes, it was. I figure not every song would be about that. Do you have a favorite track on the album? You know, I songs that I write are kind of like kids, and I feel guilty if I, you know, give too much recognition to one, the others will get jealous. But um, I, I really am a big fan of the opening track, uh, "The Grass Is Greener." That's uh, I wrote that with a great bluegrass songwriter and singer named Daryl Mosley and he and I wrote it together and um, I'm pretty happy with it you know it's about a, a man lamenting you know I thought the grass was going to be a lot greener and on the other side and turns to find out that he was looking for something that he already have and that's you know I don't think there's any new revelations there but it was how it pertained to me in my life and you know be happy with what you got what I'm trying to say through it. Well, let's take a little listen. This is Ray Cardwell from his album Just a Little Rain, and the song is called The Grass is Greener. I've always had a restless nature. I've been cursed with a gypsy soul. My bags stay packed and restless as a cat with one eye on the road, and the grass seemed greener. On the other side Yes, the grass looks greener And I'm never satisfied I've had good jobs and I left them I've had guitars that I sold I've had good love and lost them But I could never stop it Cursed with the wandering soul And the grass seemed green on the other side, yes, the grass looks greener, and at night I cry. Years and years of searching for something that I already had. Lonesome nights feel a hurting, and a heart is never satisfied. The grass looks greener And at night I cry Years and years of searching For something that I already had Lonesome nights feel the 
Listen to Ray's music and see his gig dates on his website at raycardwell.com. Ray, thank you so much for chatting with us this morning. Thank you so much. I don't think I have ever been only one degree of separation from Aretha Franklin, but thanks to jazz singer Denise Times, I am now. Denise was not only handpicked by the Queen of Soul to perform for her 72nd birthday party, but she's also toured Paris with David Sanborn, performed with Wynton Marsalis, sung at the White House and sung for two more queens, the Queen of Thailand and my own monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, who she serenaded at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. She is an amazing eight-time recipient of the St. Louis Black Repertory Company's Woody Award for both musicals and drama. And if that weren't already enough, she is also founder and director of the Mildred Times Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research and the daughter of the legendary St. Louis radio host, Lou Father Times. And amazingly, she is my guest this morning, Denise Times. What a pleasure to say welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you, Diana. Good morning. So I'm going to start with a question that I might usually end with, but with such an incredible list of performance audiences, and I only listed a handful in my introduction, I'm curious, who could possibly still be on your bucket list? (laughs) I think just being able to perform before a crowd of thousands and thousands of people, whether it be in the States or Europe, that is my ultimate goal and dream right now. Would you consider singing the national anthem to a stadium full of football fans to be thousands of audience that you'd like to sing for? I did it at a baseball game, but not a football game. It's just that I want the consistency of that, you know, I've done things like that here and there, but it's like to be able to do it, you know, at least three times or four times a week would be awesome. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) I know that because your dad was a legendary radio broadcaster, you had met Aretha Franklin and many other great singers as a child. So you did already know her, but how did it feel to stand on the stage in front of the Queen of Soul and sing for her? Absolutely amazing and very nervous (laughs) (laughs) at the same time. I'm sure she was very gracious. She was. So when you think back over your four-decade career, what performances really stand out for you? Besides Aretha Franklin, obviously. Diana, every performance is a great performance for me. Every opportunity that I have to give the gift that God has so graciously given to me, each event, each opportunity is uh, just as equally as wonderful as the one before it and the one to come. And so I really don't itemize it or put it in a category. It's just all wonderful to be able to perform and sing anytime. What makes a good audience for you? Oh, one that will talk back to me and respond to the music and just a bunch of applause and shouts and screaming and 
yes, girl, and sing that song, you know. (laughs) That's a different from classical concerts where everybody's supposed to sit very quietly and only clap when they're meant to clap. Correct. We'll have none of that. (laughs) You credit your mum with being the one who not only recognised that you had a talent for singing, but also began opening doors for you. So take us back to seven-year-old Denise. Were you the child who was constantly singing to your hairbrush and giving living room performances to your family? Or were you just constantly singing and humming to yourself? What are your memories of song in your early childhood? You're going to make me cry. I absolutely was singing my entire childhood. I can't tell you if I had a quarter for every time my mom would say, be quiet, or my (laughs) grandmother would tell me, hush. And especially when I was washing the dishes, Diana, because I was singing while I was washing the dishes, and I would always imagine myself on the Johnny Carson show at that time. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was so intrigued with the Johnny Carson show. So I would visualize myself being on the Johnny Carson show, or I would visualize myself, that little girl dancing with Danny Kay at the end of his show. So um, yeah, uh, childhood, definitely a lot of singing. Yeah. What were the songs that you liked singing as a child? Jazz songs then? or No, I was definitely Aretha Franklin, Ain't No Way, and Respect, and all of the popular tunes that made Aretha the wonderful star that she is. So had you already met her by the time you were singing her songs or were you singing her songs and then there she was in your living room one day? I was already singing her songs and then I met her. <laughs> what? I mean, what does a little girl say to Aretha Franklin? I mean, what? Were you just kind of struck dumb by her presence or were you super chatty with her? I think I was just struck down by her presence. I didn't <laughs> say anything. I just kept looking at her and she would tell my dad how pretty I was and everything. She was with Ted White at that time. And uh, he was more playful with me than she was. She was very quiet and laid back. So you had initially wanted to be a gospel singer, I believe. But then you write that you got polyps on your vocal cords and decided to switch course and learn how to sing without damaging your instrument. But I'm going to swerve into a little science here because I don't know a huge amount about what creates polyps. What do singers do wrong that creates them and how do you avoid it? So thank you for asking that, because what I tell all the singers is that it doesn't matter what type of music you sing. If you're singing incorrectly, if you're breathing and everything is not right, you can develop polyps on your vocal cords. And if you're singing, you know, which gospel is very hard on the vocal cords, if you're not lubricating the vocal cords, if you're not warming up before you sing, all of those things can bring about vocal polyps. And so uh, it doesn't, It has nothing to do with the type of songs that you're singing. It just basically has a lot to do with vocal maintenance. So how do you get rid of them? Do you have to have an operation? I had to have them surgically removed. And at that now they're using laser. And at that time, the doctors were still using the knife, so to speak. But I had a very good doctor, yeah. So there was a possibility that you wouldn't sing again. I mean, was that a a potential danger? Absolutely. That was. (gasps) That was. Yes, he said that. Yeah, but now they zap them with a laser and you're back up at it again, yeah. Jazz has been your great musical passion and you've toured the world and been compared to jazz legends like Ella Fitzgerald. And I'm, I'm always curious about the fickle nature of fame, why some people become household names and others who are absolutely equally, if not more talented, don't get the same recognition and spotlight. What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. 
um, I've learned in this business, it's part of who you know. It is still part of being at the right place at the right time. It is also hard work and getting your information out there to people. And I often wonder, you know, about my career personally, when I hear a lot of people like Aretha Franklin and Clark Terry, who I work with, and David Sanborn say, why haven't we heard of you? And my response is, that's why I'm here with you today, (laughs) so that the world can hear about me. So I don't know. Sometimes it's kind of like theater. It's like, I don't know what people are looking for. It's a certain look. It's a certain sound. But it's amazing how some people who, uh, in my opinion, respectfully speaking, who are not as talented as some of my Mm. peers and myself, you know, seem to make it in the business. That's a mystery still to me as well. Is it harder as a woman? Let me say this. I'm going to say for me, um, I think it was because I decided to to be a mom. And so that took mm-hmm. up, you know, some of my years. And it was either, am I going to be a diva or am I going to be a mother? And right. I chose to be a mother. And if I could get some diva things to happen in the midst of that, that's great. And that's how God blessed me with singing for the Queen of England and touring with David Sambor. And so all of that happened in the midst of being a doting mom. And so I'm not really sure if it's a a female thing. You know, some of that plays a part in this business. It does. And it is harder for singers in the jazz world because a lot of musicians will just right out tell you, I don't want to play for singers. You know, some of it is is a little bit of that as well. I would like to think that it's because I put my career on hold to be a mother for my two beautiful children. Well, besides music, your other great passion is raising awareness and research money for pancreatic cancer, which took your mum's life back in 1997. Tell us a little bit about what some of your proudest achievements have been as the founder and executive director of the Mildred Times Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research. Thank you for that question. Partnering with Seitman Cancer Center, which is our main cancer research center here in St. Louis, um, there was a family, a young lady who was in her 40s. She had twin beautiful girls, and she was diagnosed with stage three pancreatic cancer. And for us to be able to help her with her tangible needs and to see her daughters through graduation and see them make the transition from high school to college and know that she is still getting the best of care through the help of the foundation. That's what we're about because we like to consider ourselves as a tangible foundation for those who have been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer so that they don't have to go through the hoops of getting funds or immediate needs taken care of by going through a whole lot of changes and and bureaucracy and hoops and all of that, you know, we're there to help patients with their immediate needs. Are you a national organization or really focused in St. Louis? We are focused in St. Louis and constantly working towards becoming a national organization. So final question, if you could whisper in the ear of your 18-year-old self, just starting out with your career and vocal training, not knowing what your future might hold, what would you tell her? That you are exactly where you're supposed to be and trust the process and keep putting God first in everything that you do. 
Well, let's go out with some music. This is Denise Times singing just a very short clip of The Very Thought of You. The very thought of you And I forget to do The little ordinary things That folk ought to do Though it may seem to be That's everything Beautiful. Well, Denise, your passion and talent is such an inspiration. And I thank you so much for taking the time to share a little bit about your life. I mean, a small clip of 40 plus years of being in the business. We could talk for three hours. Um, But thank you for being with us today. You can find out more about Denise and listen to her beautiful, seductively mellifluous voice via her website at Denise Times. And that's spelled T-H-I-M-E-S, denisetimes.com. Thank you so much, Denise. Thank you, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, all of whom were recorded last year. Patrick Rafferty, Candice Ivory, Ray Cardwell and Denise Times. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally... Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.